Let's ask God's blessing on the preaching of his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to open your word this morning. Thank you for preserving your word for us, that we have it in our language, that we can study and meditate on it. We ask that you would open our ears to hear, you would open each of our hearts to what you have for us, and that we would take what you have for us this morning and you would help us to live it out this week. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I feel like I need a stool. Can everyone see me over the podium? Good. Well, first of all, thank you for having me back uh, during this time of transition at Redeemer. I look back and it's been two years since I've been here. Uh, two years, I thought maybe you all figured once was enough, but thanks for having me back. So uh, as I open, and we're going to go through the passage in Hebrews that was read a little earlier, but as we open, I, I want to ask a question that we're going to look at in light of that passage. So the question is, is everyone good with the state of the world right now? It's all good, right? Everything seems to be on track. From a Christian perspective, it definitely looks like things are headed the way I would expect. seems like God definitely has things under control. I mean, if I were God, I'd be doing things exactly the same way. (laughs) Our tiny, finite minds can't begin to grasp what God's purposes are in everything that's going on in our world. In the broader world, I mean, look around, seems like Islam seems to be everywhere, including historically Christian countries. Dictators are getting more visibility and press these days. In parts of the world, pain and suffering seem to be on the rise with famines and civil wars. In our news, suicides of famous people are making headlines weekly as people can't handle the pain in their own lives. In our country, dialogue isn't even dialogue anymore. The anger, finger-pointing, and ugliness is being accepted as a part of the way we interact as people. There's no compromise or trying to understand another viewpoint. Everyone is digging in and drawing hard lines and is very willing to isolate rather than come alongside. Our neighbor is our enemy, and there's no love or compassion, only a desire to hurt or shame or embarrass. The church is not immune to any of this either. The church has a lot of its own issues. The beliefs of the church are being attacked, and the church, in a lot of times, doesn't believe it has an answer. The church isn't taking a stand in a lot of cases. The biblical definition of marriage, the truth that God created man in his image, male and female, just two, all of that's under attack. Family's under attack. The church is seemingly becoming marginalized as Christians are unsure how to interact with everything going on in the culture, how to speak into these lives that seem to be headed away from God, seem to be denying God. A lot of the people in the church are Ephesians 4 Christians, and that's not a good thing. Ephesians 4.14 says, We are children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. We live in a crazy time. And without an understanding of the unchanging nature of the promises of God, without understanding the hope that God has given those of us who belong to him, And without understanding where our anchor truly lies, we too quickly look around and wonder where God is in all this. So this morning, what I want to do is stop, say let's reset, let's recenter, let's refocus. Let's take a few minutes and ask who it is we really do trust. Is it God? Is he trustworthy? Where is our hope? Is that hope solid? And what is our anchor? And can that anchor really hold us? And so just like so many of our brothers and sisters this morning around the world, as well as throughout history, we can look around and ask, what in the world is God doing? 
And like so many of them, we look to God's word for our answer. And it's there. The answer is there. So while we live in an interesting time, it's not unique or special. It's not just happening here in Washington State. Study church history long enough, and you'll see there have been some really messy times in the past 2,000 years. Really messy times. But God has given his people promises. God has given his people a hope and an anchor that they can rely on and carry them through when times look, well, like they do now. And even in the life of Redeemer, this is a time of transition, right? There have been other times of transition in the history of this local body. Has everything gone according to plan? Absolutely. God's plan. But are you really and truly anchored in that truth, secure and confident in God's purposes and plan? So, so many of us in our lives, we look around and our lives themselves are chaotic, And we wonder what God's purposes or plans are in all of it, in the day-to-day, in the changing of the diapers and the taking out the garbage and those. We may firmly believe in the sovereignty of God and still wonder what God's doing. It's the Lord I believe, help my unbelief. And that brings us to this passage in Hebrews. So the last eight verses of chapter 6, if you want to turn there and keep it open, we'll be in and out of there this whole morning. And so the first section in there, uh, Hebrews 6, I'm going to just 13 through 18, talks about God's promise. So I'm going to just read that again real quick. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore to himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, He guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast. So that's the first section, God's promise, and we're going to talk through all the aspects of God's promise and purpose. But first, one other thing about our culture, we're well on our way to trusting nobody. We've developed a culture of distrust. Young people are being taught to trust no one, as well as learning it by experience. There's so many people they interact with that aren't trustworthy. Promises are given, someone's word is given, and it means little or nothing. And the problem can simply be stated theologically as well. The whole world is full of liars. That's the basic problem. And Jesus in John 8 tells us why. You have one of two fathers. In verse 42 of John 8, Jesus says, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God. Then in verse 44, he tells some of the Jews why they don't understand his message. He says, You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. I look at my kids. What do my kids do? They do what their father does. We all do what our father does. It's your father, the Lord Jesus Christ, God our father. Or is your father the devil? In this world, people are turning away from God and imitating their father, the father of lies. And I talked earlier about what some of the lies are. They lie about how we are created. They lie about who's in, in whose image we are created. They lie about what the meaning and purpose of creation is. It's lies. And when you start with lies, things go sideways really quickly. You remember what happened in the very beginning, the very beginning. God created Adam, he created Eve, put them together in the garden. They're having a great time in the garden until the lying started. 
then they fell. Genesis chapter 3, and then everything broke loose from there. Everything went crazy. The whole curse of the earth, everything's messed up. Our first parents are exiled from the garden. Their kids, one brother kills the other. Life becomes wholly apart from God. Corruption and violence break out everywhere, and by the time we get to Genesis 6, God has decided to drown the whole world except for eight people. That's how bad it got that fast, starting with lies. And then the generations after the flood, it didn't get much better, right? They continued to depart from the Lord, and ongoing sinfulness of men reached a climax at Babel when God decides he has to scatter them all over the earth. Don't talk about a mess. That was a mess. And here we are in a lying world, and we're being told we can't trust anyone or anything. That's a lie. And in the middle of this, people are looking for something they can trust, something they can bank their life on and win. So who can you really believe in? Who can you bet your life on? Where can you place your confidence? Jeremiah says, trust not in lying words. Well, that rules out the devil then. Proverbs 29.25 says, whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Safe. David repeatedly affirms that, for example, in Psalm 31, he says in verse 6, I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. In Psalm 37, he makes that statement, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. That's the answer. The Bible tells us we should trust God. No kidding, you say. Incidentally, the Bible also tells you you can always tell people who really trust God because it says in Proverbs 20, 25, he that trusteth the Lord shall be made fat. That's a King James. I like that translation of that verse. It really means prosper, like he said, prosper. But the author of Hebrews is dealing with the question of can we really trust God? Can God really keep that which you commit to him? Can you give your life to Jesus Christ? Can you place your hands, your life, in the hands of God and be secure that God will hold on to you? Perhaps the best example of a man trusting God, especially for these Hebrews that this author is writing to, is the example of Abraham. And that's where these verses start. So I'm jumping right in the middle of the book of Hebrews. And so here's some background, just briefly. The writer of the Hebrews is urging the Jews, the Hebrews he's writing to, to completely abandon everything from the Old Covenant. Everything from Judaism is to be dropped away. They're to commit themselves entirely to the new covenant and to Jesus Christ. He's say, the author is saying you don't need any of these old things. You can forget the temple. You can forget the priesthood. You can forget the holy days, all of that. You need to come all the way to Jesus, all the way, and drop everything else. You can trust God. You can throw all your confidence on God. And in verse 13, that's when the writer of Hebrews says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Abraham trusted God, and it paid off. So let's consider Abraham for a moment. Because Abraham shows up repeatedly in the New Testament. And we'll talk about a couple other places in a minute. But when you think about where Abraham came from, Abraham was a pagan. Lived in a city known as Ur with his father. His father was a descendant of Shem, one of the sons of Noah. Abraham's father was a pagan, worshiping false gods. And all of a sudden, in Genesis chapter 12, God shows up and says, All right, Abram, pack up. You're leaving. Get everything you've got and get out. I'm going to take you to a place 
that I want you to go. That's a, that is a big deal. Right? Abraham is a, a chieftain of a tribe, moving them all out to a place that God's just going to show them along the way. It's not a small undertaking. And Abram gets another promise, reiteration of a promise that God would bless him and multiply his seed and give him a great nation and so forth and so on, that through all of his seed, all the families of the earth would be blessed. This is repeated to him a lot in Genesis, Genesis 12, 13, 17, 18, 22, over and over and over. God says to him, here's my promise. Here's my promise. Here's my promise. And Abraham believed it. He really believed God. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying, follow those who through faith have gone all the way to inherit the promises, such as Abraham. And Abraham then becomes the theme of verses 13 to 20 here in Hebrews. Mimic those who have come to God in faith and let Abraham be your example. Paul and James both use Abraham, like I said, in other places in their writings. Paul does it in Romans 4. For what does the scripture say in Romans 4, 3? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. In this, Paul's arguing, the Jews were arguing that since they were circumcised and followed the law, they had salvation. And Paul's saying, no, even before Abraham was circumcised, he had faith and that was counted to him as righteousness. James pulls out the same Abraham argument in James 2, 3. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. So Abraham had these promises and he believed God and obeyed God. And it's James 2 where James argues that faith without works is dead. Remember that part. Abraham acted on his faith. Hebrews 11, it says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Just took off. That's faith. That's faith. It's the evidence of, what? Things not seen. Same chapter, verse 9. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. In other words, clear on down the line, Isaac and Jacob, they're still living in tents in a land that wasn't really their own. But believing God. They went the way that God told them to go. And so we ask, well, what evidence do you have? Like, what real evidence did you have to go out and step of faith? Like, I, God came and said, move. Like, well, what did he give Abraham? What kind of guarantee did he have that he wasn't just going to go out and die in the wilderness? Or that he gets into a land and he gets killed? How can he trust God like that? We want guarantees in our lives. We want to know how it's going to turn out. How do we know if we want to go down this path if we don't know how it's going to turn out? And so the answer in these verses as to how he trusts God, we see the basic securities that God has given us, and they're no different than they were that he gave to Abraham than we have today. Abraham could trust God for some very obvious and powerful reasons, and we can too. Because when the Lord promises, he puts his integrity on the line. It's a matter of his character, and every promise of God is secured by his character, and that's the issue of these verses. The real overriding general security in these verses is the person of God and the character of God. If God says you're safe with me, then you better be safe with him, or his word is worth nothing. If his word is worth nothing, then he's worth nothing. So the character of God is at stake in the question of security. Can you give your life to God? Can you take him at his word? 
Can he keep you from falling? Can he finish the work he has begun in your lives? Will he lose you at some point along the way? Is there real security with God? Well, Abraham believed there was, and the Bible says there is. So three quick aspects of this security from these verses. They're God's person, God's purpose, and God's pledge. First, our security with God is guaranteed by his person. It's secured by who he is. Verse 13, for when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself. That's an amazing verse. The verse says there's no one greater in the universe than God. Now that means whoever he is, he makes the rules. And the reason God can't lie is because he is the author of truth. And whatever he says is truth. By the very nature of his person, he can't lie. Verse 18, two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. The person of God, his attributes, his nature, make it impossible for him to lie. He can't do it. Not possible. He has no ability to contradict himself. His promises are secured by his person. There's no greater person. He's the source of truth. Whatever he does is right, and whatever he says is truth. No capacity to lie. Jesus, in the high priestly prayer in John 17, 17, says, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. It's not that his word is true. His word is truth. Everything that comes out of the mouth of God is absolute truth. Therefore, if God makes a promise, he will keep it. 2 Peter 3.9 The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. He can't be. And the Lord not being slow means there's no gap between the promise and the fulfillment. He's patient, sure, but when God says it, it will happen. That's his nature. No capacity to lie. The opening of the book of Titus. Paul, a servant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. God promises eternal life for those that come to Jesus. He can't lie. So verse 14 is God's promise. Then we saw God gave in Genesis over and over, surely I will bless you and multiply you. So God gave his promise, and it was a big one, and he can't lie. Was believing easy? No. Verse 15 says, Abraham, having waited patiently, obtained the promise. Patiently endured. Endured doesn't sound easy. And we know some of the story, how Abraham endured, how he hung in there. He threw his whole life on God, and God took him through some amazing times. Abraham said, God, I'm just going to trust you. Here I go. And he fell, and God picked him up, and it looked like an impossibility at times. He didn't have any sons. And when he did have a son, he took Isaac after he was born and went up the mountain. He had the knife in the air, and it was all over. Isaac dies, that's it. Promise over. And yet he raised his arm, and God stayed his hand. But he went that far, Because that's how far he believed God's promise. That's faith. On the way up the mountain, he said to Isaac, God will provide a sacrifice. God did provide. He believed God. You can trust God. We might find ourselves running all the way to the edge. 
We see the cliff coming. He has never failed, and God never will. So Abraham was secure because of the person of God. God can't lie. Can't back out of his promises. You can trust God, and God will never fail because he has no capacity for failure in his nature. So second, not only are we secure because of God's person, because of who he is, but we're secure because of God's purpose. Now, God just came to Abram and said, get up, we're leaving. Abraham didn't come to God and say, hey, God, do you have any plans for me? Looking for somewhere to go, something to do. I'd like to get out of this place. Ur is just not. God just reached down and said, up and out, Abraham. Here's the plan. The covenant God made with Abraham, the promise God made to him, was a non-conditional unconditional covenant. He didn't say, if you do this, Abraham, I'll do this. He said, get up and get out, Abraham. I'm doing this. There wasn't any conditions on Abraham's part. Abraham wasn't even involved. He was only a spectator. I'll show you that in a minute. It's interesting what God did with Abraham. But God said, get up and get out, because God did have a plan. He had a predetermined purpose, and Abraham was a key guy in that purpose. Why was Abraham secure in that? Because he knew that God doesn't let his plans get messed up. A lot of times we think our plans get messed up. A lot of times we think things aren't looking the way we would have them look. God's plans are different. God designed that Abraham be the father of a nation, and that was God's unconditional purpose. He said, Abraham, I'm going to do it. Genesis 15 again. God has already given his promise to Abraham a couple times in Genesis 12 and 13. Abraham's still not too sure about it. Still falling by faith. God has to keep reiterating it. It's amazing how even when we believe God, we don't believe God. Abraham said, how can this be? I don't have a son. God gave him the promise again. And Abraham believed him. And it was counted to him as righteousness. Then God established a covenant. And this is what I was saying earlier when it was just it was an unconditional covenant. The covenant wasn't made between God and, and Abram. It was made between God and God. So in Genesis 15, God says, okay, we're going we're gonna to make this covenant. And he gives, and it gives Abram all these things he has to do. He has to get all these animals and cut them in half and do this and that. Because covenants had to be sealed with blood. And uh, when God was ready to make the covenant, he knocked Abram out, put him to sleep. There was nothing Abram, he didn't have to agree to anything. He was unconscious. This was God's covenant. This was God's purpose. This was God's plan, God's promise. He'll never violate his own promise because it would mess up his eternal purpose. Jeremiah 51, 29, every purpose of the Lord shall be performed. Did God choose Abraham to accomplish his purpose? Yes. Well, then it's going to happen. Isaiah 14, 24, the Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. God never violates his own purpose. Psalm 33, 11, the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations The purpose of God stands forever. 
Can we rest in that for a minute? God's purposes stand forever. That's why we can be secure. God purposed before the world for what was going to happen to you and to me. God purposed before the beginning of the world to conform those of us he has called into the image of Jesus. And if he messed up on that promise, he would mess up his eternal purpose. And just like with Abraham, he doesn't do that. So let's bring this around to us for a minute. Look at Ephesians 1.3. Ephesians 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So what did we do in those verses? What did we have to do? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. We've just been standing around. Doesn't say anything about us at all. Said God, according to his own purposes, said, here's the way I'm going to go. And this is who I'm going to use just like he did with Abraham. This is God's plan. And that's part of the security we can have in trusting God. Here's the truth of this again from Romans 8. Romans 8, 28. We know this verse. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. God's got it all purposed. You're secure in that purpose. Romans 8.29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Everyone that he foreordained, he predestined to be conformed to Jesus Christ. Everyone. There's no one lost somewhere along the way. God's purpose is, I'm going to call out people who I'm going to conform to the image of Jesus Christ. And that's why Jesus could say, all that the Father has given me have come to me. And he says, and I have lost none. Goes on to say, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, and those whom he predestined he also called, and those whom he also justified, and those whom he justified he also glorified. Any any slippage in there? See anyone get lost along the way? Whoever he foreordained will be like Christ, will be glorified. There's nobody lost. He doesn't lose anybody. Why? Because when he purposes something, it happens. That's his plan from eternity past, and that's exactly what will happen because God's promises never fail because then that would mess up his eternal purpose. And God doesn't mess up his purposes. He's God. He makes no mistakes. We can be secure. God's pledge so God has purpose to love us and purpose to conform us to Christ, and nothing can violate that. And once we come to a relationship with Jesus Christ, we're secure in the eternal purpose of God. That's our security. Then he gives us his pledge. So back to Hebrews. The end of verse 13 it says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no, no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. In other words, he made an oath on himself. Verse 16, he explains the idea of an oath. For people swear by something greater than themselves. In other words, if you're going to make an oath, you swear by something greater than yourself. right? You can't just swear by yourself because it needs to be something greater. 
And it continues, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So what that's saying is, is when, when men argue, the guy says, I swear by the high priest, or I swear by God, then that was confirmation. That ended the argument. When a man swears by something higher than himself, the argument was over. And so verse 17 says, So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So God said, okay, that's the pattern. But God didn't need to take an oath, right? God's word is good without it. But God said, okay, I'll pledge that what I mean is for real. I don't lie. And so, and, and, and we see this pattern elsewhere in the Old Testament. It's really kind of interesting. Uh, a lot of times uh, we'll see uh, men say, as the Lord lives, and then so I do this, right? And then they'd give their thing. As the Lord lives, so I will do this. See it in Judges and Ruth and First Samuel. I won't go through all the examples. But they appealed to God, as the Lord lives. That was their oath. Now, in the Old Testament, God made oaths too. And he did the same thing. And he said, as I live, so I shall do this. Because he couldn't swear by anyone greater. There wasn't anyone greater. There's not anyone greater. So he swore by himself. As I live, he would say. One example. Numbers 14, starting in verse 20. After Moses Moses intercedes for the people of Israel there in the wilderness, God promises judgment. And the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. So answering Moses. But truly, as I live, and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despise me shall see it. But truly as I live, the Lord says, none of them will enter the promised land. None of them did. So then in verse 18 of chapter 6 in Hebrews, he says, there it is, two unchangeable things. Those are his promise and his pledge, his promise and his oath. He stated it, and he swore by it, and they're unchangeable. You're secure, he says. Come to Christ. There's nothing to fear. I'll hold you. I'll never let you go. If he gives you salvation in Jesus Christ, he'll never change it. And then he says, it was impossible for God to lie. So we might have a strong encouragement, a strong encouragement, a strong confidence. We who have fled for refuge to hold fast to the hope set before us. Do we know he can hold us? Do we believe that he can hold us in the midst of everything going on in our lives? Can he hold us? Do we believe that? Do we believe what Jude said? I said, he is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Do you believe that? Do you have a strong encouragement of that? Do you have a strong confidence? So the question is, what is that hope set before us? Where is our hope? What is the Christian's hope? So Hebrews six eighteen and 19. We who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. 
this hope as an anchor for the soul. So this hope is something solid and secure and firm and tangible. It's not a hope like we think about hope. The word hope occurs in Hebrews five places. Just quickly running through the five. Hebrews 3, 5, and 6. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast to our confidence and are boasting in our hope. Hebrews 6, 11, and 12. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And then the Hebrews 6 passage that we're talking through this morning, Hebrews 7, 18 and 19. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. Finally, Hebrews 10, 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So the hope that we're talking about in Hebrews 6 is a hope that can be held onto, that can be seized, right? It's not just a subjective experience. It's not just something we can wish for. It's something we can hold onto. It's a sure and firm hope. You know, we say, we say, well, I, I hope, I hope we win the game today. Well, that's uncertain. It's uncertain. It's not a sure thing. But Hebrews says our hope is an anchor that's both secure and firm. That's different. That is really different. The word hope in 719, where it says a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. It's, it, we use that kind of similarly, I guess. And we say, well, I, with the Mariners, good pitching is our only hope, right? We mean, well, okay, if we had quality pitching, we can maybe get to the postseason. But there's a difference, still a difference. The author of Hebrews is arguing that since Christ has come and died for us, we have a better hope, right? Because it's a guarantee. Good pitching is Mariner's only chance to make it to the postseason. Christ is our only guarantee of victory. So again, these aren't these subjective, wishful hopes that people talk about in our world. This hope is a guarantee. And that's I think that's clearest in 6.11, where the author of Hebrews proceeds hope with full assurance of, certainty of hope. This means the hope we have should involve certainty. It's a certain thing. It's not up in the air. It's not a question. It's solid and real and definite. So that brings us to the last two verses. Verses 19 and 20. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor. This is the hope. Verse 18. We have this hope as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Paul in 1 Timothy 1.1 tells us what that hope is in this opening. Opens Timothy. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God, our Savior, and of Jesus Christ, our hope. Jesus is our hope, period. Jesus is our hope. Jesus is a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. I, you know this, the Old Testament. 
the most sacred place was the Holy of Holies. The ark was there. The glory of God was there. And only once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest could go in there. And he had to go in and do his stuff and get out fast. Right? He couldn't linger. That was where God dwelt. No man could go in there. But our high priest, Jesus, performed the once and final sacrifice, perfect sacrifice, and entered into the Holy of Holies. And when he went there, he didn't quickly do his business and rush around and leave. The Bible says he went, finished his work, and he sat down, finished the job. So when we put our faith in Jesus, our anchor, our anchor of hope, what do we do? We, we're anchored with him behind the veil in the Holy of Holies, in the presence of God where God lives. We're anchored to Jesus behind the veil. Nothing can take that away. That's security. Jesus went in, the forerunner, the first, was a new kind of high priest. He went in there and we're anchored to him. How long are we anchored there? Until until he loses us? No. Verse 20, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest for how long? Forever. Forever. I'm anchored to God forever. So Hebrews 2.1, we must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we don't drift away. Our people drift and die. Pay attention. I spoke about Ephesians 4 Christians at the beginning and how so many in the church are being tossed to and fro by the waves, by everything that's going on in our world and our culture. Well, I'm thankful that after verse 14 of Ephesians 4, there's a verse 15. Ephesians 4. Actually, I'm going to start in verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Anchored in Christ, built up into Christ, growing into Christ, held together as brothers and sisters, as part of the body. And when all the parts work together, the body grows. Jesus is our hope. Jesus is our anchor. Do you believe that? You have to. James says you have to. James 1, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. Because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. Sounds like they don't have an anchor. Sounds like they're not anchored to Jesus. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, James says. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. The one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. So, how can we be more securely anchored to Jesus? 
God is not going to lose us, but there are things we can do to build our faith in that anchor. We talked about truth. Our anchor of truth is God's word. John 8, to the the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If you hold on to my teaching, how do we hold on to what Jesus taught? Well, we have to know what Jesus taught first, and where is that at? It's in his word. There should always be an emphasis of being in the word, and I want to echo that this morning. And so there's, there's just a couple quick ways I want to mention how we can emphasize the word. First, you need to hear the word. You need to hear the word preached. Romans 10, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him who they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Be in church. Be in church with your church family. You hear the word. It's also interacting with each other. You can sense where people are at. You can encourage people. Can't do that at home. Second, you need to read the word. Like the kings of Israel, Deuteronomy 17. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book, a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it in all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. And it shall be with him, the words with him. The scriptures were to be a constant companion. Read the word. No one regrets being in the word on a daily basis. Many people lament not being in the word enough. Do you ask each other how your time in the Word is? Don't be afraid to. What are you reading? What did you read in the Word this week? Encourage each other. Because when was the last time you asked someone how their Bible reading was going when they said, well, I'm spending too much time in the Word? (laughs) I don't think I've ever heard that. Encourage each other. Read. Study the Word. Study the Word. We all know the story of the Bereans... Acts 17, they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. When was the last time you went home on a Sunday after your worship time and you said, I need to study the word and see if the things that were said are actually so? Are you going to go home today and say, I don't know who that Eric guy is, but I need to study the word and see if what he said is true? Maybe you should. When was the last time you did a Bible study? When was the last time you did just a study on your own? A word study. A person study. Study the person of Abraham. Study the miracles of Jesus. It's not hard to find something to study. Memorize. You need to memorize the word. Proverbs 7, 2, and 3. My son, keep my commandments. Treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Memorizing scripture is the key to quick responses in life. You put it in, and it comes back up and out when you need it the most. Start small. Memorize one sentence a month. One little verse. Put it in. And then when you're in some situation, it's like that reflex. 
comes out. Meditate on the word. Think about the word every day. We all know that Psalm 1. Delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. What you think about during the day, in relation to what happens during the day, starts building up those responses. Meditate on the word. Everything that situations that happened, well, how does this measure up against the word? Did I react in a way that was biblical? Meditate on the word. Finally, do the word. See how these things build on each other? Hear the word, read the word, study the word, meditate on the word, do the word. James 1.22, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Hearing is good. Reading is good. But don't only do that. Live it out. Do the word. And where can you do the word? Here is a start. This local body at Redeemer. Right? Jesus is the anchor of your faith. The word is an anchor of your truth. Well, this local body is an anchor of the community for you. You're connected to Redeemer. You're connected to each other here at Redeemer. Redeemer is connected to Trinity and Emmanuel. We need those connections. We need the connections of families. We need the connections of local churches. Why? Because the storms will come. And it won't look like it's going to turn out well. That's a given. But the storms aren't unexpected. And the storms aren't out of God's plan and purpose. The storms come from God as well. We learn that in Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night? Who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar? The Lord of hosts is his name. God stirs up the storms, and it's often to get us to pay attention and understand that God is our anchor. We start getting tossed about, and it's like, oh, right, where's my anchor? That we're secure in him, that we can have confidence in the hope set before us, that his purposes are unchanging. We have a picture of someone who who didn't believe that in the Bible, too. We call him the anti-Abraham. man who thought he could change God's purpose. Thought he could change God's plan. Meet my friend Jonah. So I'm just going to close with Jonah's prayer from Jonah chapter 2. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. We know the story of Jonah. So he's in the belly of the fish, and this is his prayer. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you What I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Jonah started listening to the lies. He lost the confidence and the security he had. But God had a purpose for Jonah, 
God had a plan for Nineveh, and God accomplished it all. Don't wait as long as Jonah to proclaim that your salvation, your anchor, is only in the Lord. Things might look out of control. They might look out of control in your family. They might look out of control in Washington. They might look out of control in our world. Is all of this really God's plan and purpose? Yes, it is. So stand secure. Secure in your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the anchor and hope for your soul. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are unchanging, that your plan and your purposes will be accomplished not only in our lives, but in all of history as your kingdom continues to grow to cover the earth. Forgive us for our unbelief. Forgive us for looking around and losing heart. Conform us more into the likeness of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. God, our only hope in this world is in you. Our only hope for an abundant life is in Jesus, our Savior. We ask all this in his powerful name. Amen.